नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चारवक पॉडकास्ट दिस इज योर होस्ट कुशल मेहरा सो बिफोर आई वेलकम जेरेड इन द पॉडकास्ट जस्ट टू गिव यू गाइस अ ब्रीफ एक्सप्लेनेशन एवरीबॉडी मस्ट बी वंडरिंग द वर्ल्ड टेस्ट चैंपियनशिप फाइनल हैज जस्ट फिनिश्ड यस्टरडे एंड यू आर टॉकिंग अबाउट डोपिंग इन क्रिकेट विद जेरेड सो फुल डिस्क्लोजर दिस वाज सपोज्ड टू बी अ पॉडकास्ट दैट वाज गोइंग टू बी हेल्ड आई थिंक अ कपल ऑफ वीक्स अगो बट देन the rain gods had to come in between this podcast and the ipl final got delayed by a day so jared told me how the hell are we going to do this i was like yeah naturally we can't do this i understand you have to cover the ipl final so we postponed it and it just happened to be that the dates that jared and i could do it on happened to be after the world test championship final so we'll talk about doping in cricket first but in case to the live viewers on youtube if you have any questions for jared about the world test championship final i will incorporate them and you can ask them later on but let's get started so before everything else jared welcome thanks for coming on the podcast again no worries thanks for having me so let's start here where i i purposely called it doping in cricket and uh, maybe for definitional purposes people don't even understand what doping is when when we discuss doping they they don't know what it is uh, so so what are performance enhancing drugs and what what doping basically encapsulates in terms of how does it affect let's say sport performance and stuff like that Yeah, there's some fascinating articles out there, and obviously there've been films about it um, now as well, documentaries and other things. But essentially, the best way of of, of uh, explaining it is, it allows you to do things that your body would not normally allow you to do. So it may be recovery, it may be strength, it may be endurance. Uh, energy is another one. Uh, if you remember back in the day, there were players who would uh, dope on caffeine. Um, I think that was around ninety two, ninety six period. There are a lot of uh, different athletes who would do things like that as well. and the idea is that you could push your body um beyond the limits of what you should be able to do with artificial stimuli and it look it's been going on for a very very long time i suppose it gets very big when money starts to come into sport a little bit more around the 1960s and 1970s and the the way that we kind of think about it is probably in races because it's easiest to see in races right and there's a great i think there's a book and a documentary about the 1988 olympics where i think there was only one uh athlete in the 100 meter final who was not uh, in men's final who was not um uh, ever linked to any uh, performance enhancing substances so you can tell how far it went there's also you know things that happened in Russia um and China the Nike Nike has been um implicated in this as well where there's been what what you would call uh, organizational um uh, doping so it's not one athlete going off trying to become faster it's a whole structure we've seen that in Aussie rules football as well like so many sports around the world uh the sky racing thing was really interesting the the cyclists where suddenly all those incredible athletes who were great at the tour de france all had asthma at the same time um so there's so many different parts of it but essentially what you know it's performance enhancing drugs is what we are talking about and the the spectrum on that is so wildly different and there are so many different things that you can and can't take um there are masking agents and all sorts of things it's a really complicated world yeah it, it's not only complicated because from what i understand the biggest scandal in doping uh, from what little i have followed sport is obviously the lance armstrong story and the mm-hmm. tour de france where eventually when they came up with who's going to be given the the winning winners trophy they had to go down all the way to number 17 or something i was like wow everybody from top to bottom 
was basically doping. So they had to go to number 17. I was like, okay, you, you are the winner now. So that was there. And the big scandal, the doping scandal, where cricketers or people in cricket can relate to is the baseball one. I don't know if you followed yeah. that. That was the biggest one, right? When it came to yeah. drugging players up. I mean, again, it follows that sort of thing as the money really got big in baseball and also as it became a more professional sport, the athletes were getting paid by the home runs. And what's a way of confirming that you can hit more home runs? If you go back and have a look at those baseballers, they don't look like they have normal human bodies anymore. And 20 years earlier, you had strong baseballers. No one's saying that, you know, we, we expect a, a gradual improvement of physical, you know, we get taller and we get stronger as a species the longer, we, you know, we go. Um, but there seemed to be a jump between normal baseball body and then suddenly the guys who were doping. And uh, there's absolutely no doubt that, you know, that that shocked baseball. And there's, there's a really good documentary on Netflix. I forget the name of it, which is about how bumbling and stupid the performance in uh, drugs were. I, I think it's called, I want to say it's called like Screwball or something, but I think it's got ball in the title. But it's, it's good if you can find it. It talks about Alex Rodriguez having a, you know, picture of himself at his own house and everything. But yeah, baseball, I suppose, was because it is such a closely linked sport to cricket. But that's not where cricket doping first started. In fact, cricket doping first starts through fast bowling, whereas that didn't seem to be as big an issue in baseball. Their, their batting went for power um, and our bowlers went for pace um, in a slightly different way. You know, and I'm just saying these are the public cases that we're aware of. Yeah, so... I was, in fact, I, that was going to be my follow-up question. Where, where would performance-enhancing drugs? Now, now, full disclosure, and even before we start the podcast, I, I did share my my overall stand on PEDs was very different when I started following sport as a fan to today. And one of the big influences in my change was a journalist, a mixed martial arts journalist called Luke Thomas. Luke has a very nuanced view on PEDs. And he, yeah, I don't know what to say. Is Luke pro PEDs? I don't think so. He's pro PEDs. But Luke Thomas is uh, very nuanced on his uh, take when it comes to PEDs. And he says, if you look at the overall performance criteria, but we'll get into all of that later on. But what I want to maybe focus over here is that from a purely physical perspective, don't you think in a game like cricket, fast bowling was going to be the natural area where PEDs would have been used? Yes, I suppose before T20 cricket, um, that's certainly, it makes the most sense uh, if you're a fast bowler that you would do that. So I, I think, I don't, I don't know how you feel about this, but I would have thought growing up that the racing sports and that and the boxing sports and you know wrestling or mixed martial arts or whatever those sorts of things are there was a direct correlation between taking drugs in those and and, and playing and it made sense whereas i think we think of cricket as a very skill dependent sport right mm -hmm. so glenn mcgrath is not the fastest bowler in the world but he was clearly the best bowler in the world uh shane Warne and murali and kumble right and i do think there was a part of me at that point that went yeah i'm not saying drugs can't help and I'm not saying no one uses them, but I remember doing a podcast with Gideon Haig about this and we were both, and, and something had happened. I can't remember what the news was, but something had happened. And we were basically saying at the time, look, we don't think it makes as much uh, difference. Looking back on it, we now understand, and now I've talked to fast bowlers and, you know, you, you know uh, Alex Tudor, I've talked to him a lot and, you know, he, he's really honest. He's like, as a fast bowler, there's not a day when you're not sore, right? 
that means that one thing that could really help fast bowlers would then be would then being able to do the performance at the top level without putting all the extra balls in right so straight away forget the speed element which is probably what you're talking about which makes a lot of sense but just on a on a basis of how many balls do you want Jofra Archer or Mark Wood or Anrik Norkia to do in practice right you want them to have all of their best balls available for them in a game but they still need to be able to practice there's a lot of performance enhancing drugs that help you get through practice and when you generally it's the training and the way that you build up your anaerobic capacity which is where steroids specifically were really, really helpful. So it wasn't so much that steroids made, uh, I'm trying to think, uh, uh, what, who was the Canadian? Ben? Uh, uh, ben Johnson, ben the, Johnson. the sprinter, right? Yeah. It's not that they made him quicker than the other runners. He was able to practice at a level that no one else could practice at because of everything else he was doing. And, you know, I've read a lot about the cyclers doing a very similar thing of just being able to practice at a level that a normal human couldn't practice, which means when they're out on the track, you know, they ha even when they're not in any longer taking the drugs, because they've had to go off them because they know they're about to be tested, but their training is, is so high. So, yeah, so I think it's around the year 2000 that we start to realize that um, people are using anabolic steroids in cricket. And there's absolutely no doubt that we have, I think there are three bowlers. I think it was Muhammad Asif, um, Shoal Bakhtar and Duncan Spencer were all caught at a similar stage. Um, very, very different things. And obviously Pakistan eventually sort of move on from the Shoal Bakhtar and Muhammad Asif um, thing very quickly. Duncan Spencer, mo no one listening to this podcast will know who Duncan Spencer is, but Viv Richards, who's on my t-shirt, by the way, um, said that Duncan Spencer was about as fast a bowler as he ever faced. Duncan Spencer back kept breaking. He was actually taking steroids under a doctor's supervision because to fix his spine and he'd given up professional cricket. Um, and then without thinking, he got really good at bowling again, was repicked because suddenly he was bowling 95 miles an hour again. Uh, and of course, there were still some steroids in his system. But the point being that Duncan Spencer wouldn't have been able to bowl at 95 miles an hour ever again had he not been able to, you know, be able to rebuild himself using steroids. So we know that pace specifically plays a huge role. But if you think of Arjuna Ranatunga or Jesse Ryder or, um, you know, uh, Mike Gatting, uh, you know, these sort of overweight kind of players, it, you can understand why a lot of people are looking at cricket going, well, how much can, you know, performance enhancing help if we've got players who are not actually the world's mm. most fittest players out there? Interesting enough, you could say the exact same thing about baseball. Baseball has a lot of guys who are not particularly conventionally fit, right? You know, they, they, would, str they would struggle if they're playing on your beach volleyball team. Yeah. But, you know, the, the micro athletic skills, which we're learning a lot more about modern sport. You know, you watch Joker in, in, the, um, in the NBA finals at the moment. We're learning a lot more about athleticism that actually it's a lot more, it's a lot more to do with these micro athletic skills rather than how fast can you run and how high can you jump and all those sorts of things. So... I, I think that we misunderstood a little bit about what those sorts of skills were and when, and then for how you could actually use performance enhancing drugs outside of just fast bowlers. So do you think PEDs are not just from a fast bowling perspective, PEDs are not just about pace. They're also about endurance. And that's where the whole, uh, I think Alex Tudor is spot on when he says fast bowling is not just about the, 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 the workload on the field while you're actually playing a match. Fast bowling is about the workload in the nets when you're mm. bowling all the time. And that's when the injuries happen. Again, for me, why I can understand this is I follow martial arts. A lot of people think that a fighter gets hit 
only when they're fighting. No, yeah. that there are hard sparring sessions inside the gym when they're preparing for a fight. And most of the times, uh, I barely hear fighters giving interviews and saying that they did not walk into an actual fight without having some kind of an injury. They are always injured. They have some niggle all the time. And that's when uh, performance-enhancing drugs actually are uh, a very attractive uh, so solution, uh, yeah. let's say, but but then what do you make of this entire debate? So I remember in in, in India also, Yunus Khan was caught. Uh, if I remember correctly, uh, I was reading the news. I think once Prithvi Shaw was caught uh, was uh, marked for some banned substance uh, recently. But the most famous incident was obviously Shane Vaughan. Mm. What the hell was Shane Warne's incident about? I mean, what, what he he said his mum gave him something or so that's all. Yeah, the Shane Warne one's really interesting because I think the general consensus on Shane Warne at that stage was that he was not the world's most professional dude, right? Like, I think at that stage, you know, you'd had the baked beans, you'd had the cigarette sponsorship where he got caught smoking a cigarette straight afterwards. You had the affairs that were in public. Um, you know, all these all these different things that happened to Shane Warne and would continue to happen to him even after the, the steroid. Uh, or just, sorry, not the steroid, the, the, the drug. His was not a steroid. But, and I think he got the benefit of the doubt a little bit based on the fact that everyone knew he was vain already. And it was a, I think it was a diuretic that he used. I'd have to look up the exact thing. But essentially it was a weight loss um, thing. The reason it was on the banned list, of course, is because it was a masking agent. And... Uh, I think at that stage in Australia, Australia was going through a very interesting time when it comes to drugs and sport. I remember looking this up once. Australians are very pious when it comes to drugs and sport. They believe that they're clean and that a bunch of Russians and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, East Germans and, and Chinese people have stolen medals off them, especially in swimming, where Australia obviously does so well. But when you look up the actual numbers, there's quite a lot of Australians who've been done for, for, for performance enhancing. And what the Australians will tell you is that's because we test better and we actually want to find the cheats. Like, maybe, but it also suggests a lot of Australians are actually still doping. But I think separate to that is it was at, at a similar period where Australia was very good at sport and they were very upset with some other countries they thought were cheating. The, the Shane Warne one, we don't know. If he was taking a diuretic, I think his excuse, as you said, his mother gave him a diuretic. He was going on TV and he looked a little bit puffy in the face. And as someone who, I'm not friends with Shane Warne, but I obviously knew him and worked with him and interviewed him and, you know, occasionally went out with him. He actually had this thing with his face where uh, by the end, the plastic surgery had probably taken over a little bit, but it was, he did have, I don't know the best way of putting it, like a, he got puffy cheeks. Do you know what I mean? You know, everyone's got a friend who has a couple of, you know, a couple of uh, pasta meals and then suddenly just looks bloated, right? And Shane Warne was one of those sorts of people and he was incredibly vain. However, look at his body. His body was falling apart. His shoulder had fallen apart. His finger had fallen apart. We now know a lot more about bowling spin. At that stage, if you had said that Shane Warne was need needing a PED, I think everyone, every cricket writer in the world would have been like, what are you talking about? It's a skill thing. Now we know so much more about biomechanics and the arm speed that he had and the pain that he had to bowl through. There is a possibility that he was using some sort of PED to get through the practice sessions, to get through everything else. So we don't know is the answer, right? We can only go with the fact that he was never caught taking anything specifically that said that um, that he was trying to dope. It was a masking agent, which is it's, it's not a gray area as far as being suspended, but it's a gray area in, 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 in the way that we think about it. You know, it's not the same. There's kind of three different things. There's, you don't go to the test at all. 
we kind of think you might be dodgy. There's the masking agents, and we're like, well, that could have gone either way. And then there's you actually got a steroid or a human growth hormone or whatever it may be in your system. You can you can tell us that your drink was spiked, but why would anyone spend thousands of dollars to spike your drink? Mate? It doesn't really make any sense to us. Um, so I, I think from that perspective, uh, Shane Warne sort of falls on the lighter side. But I think the more we know about sport and the more we know about cricket, it, it certainly is an absolutely huge possibility that he was doing that. Now, we'll never know the truth, and I don't think Shane Warne would have ever said um, that uh, one way or another. But that certainly was huge because he had a big suspension. And I think the suspension is the bigger thing there. That Australia, essentially, Warren could have retired at that point. And on top of the fact he could have retired, he actually missed the World Cup um, and never played really. I don't, can't remember if he ever played any white ball cricket for Australia after that point. I don't think he did. So they lost one of their best players. And a lot of it was to do with the fact that I think he felt a little bit hard done by. Um, uh, and he took, I think he took the fine. Or, or sorry, took the suspension, but was a little bit upset with the the whole situation. So this is the perfect segue I was looking for. Now there are the technical aspects of how how much a PED helps, how much it doesn't help. There there are conflicting pieces of research on that too. Some say it barely has a statistical significance. Hmm. Some say it it does, but there is a moral aspect to it. Now, my personal journey has been like I said. I don't get the moral panic behind it. I, I, I'm being very open. I, I don't understand the moral panic behind doping in the first place. I think uh, a lot of the moral panic also stems from the... What word am I looking to use here? Because I don't want to say something irresponsible. Uh, it comes from a lot of taboos surrounding marijuana and consumption of marijuana in general. And that 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 taboo kind of extends to all these other things and so at a moral level what, what like what do we make of this like, i don't get the problem it's very interesting we have a sport like cricket most of the nations i was looking at uh, uh, right now most of them are countries where marijuana consumption is illegal illegal or qualified legally yeah. like in india for example australia i think marijuana is illegal i looked it up i even asked a few of my aussie friends that uh, i mean everybody can score a joint in australia that's it's, not it's not prosecuted unless you do it on a mass scale really yeah i don't think you get arrested for having a single joint i think i'm not sure what this is like in the whole country but my memory of melbourne was you got a fine uh, like a 50 dollar fine which you might get a, a fine if you have an open alcohol on the street too do you know what i mean like yeah, You're not yeah. supposed to be doing that either. Yeah, so most of the countries, very interestingly, that play cricket also have this culture of marijuana. Very interestingly, India had no problems with marijuana till the 1970s Reagan administration and the war on drugs started. And, and the whole world basically flipped after Americans thought, uh, and like most of mm. the times, you know, global politics is dominated by, by what the Americans want. And Americans wanted a war on drugs and every country kind of followed up. And in India, marijuana, which was not really illegal in that sense, became illegal in so many states. And now in India, you can consume marijuana in a qualified government certified way or some places or in some states you can actually do it. But today that moral panic and that taboo associated with marijuana in general, a lot of that in my view also affects the discussion on sport where like, I don't know if somebody has cheated. I, I genuinely don't know. Is somebody cheating? 
Like, where do you uh, stand on all of this? That's why I wanted to pick your brain first on this aspect. Yeah, I, I think I think the drugs thing you talk about is interesting because, you know, we know that Coca-Cola had cocaine in it, right? Yeah. And, and we know that it's drugs... Insane. Yeah, and we know that was a heroin was sold over the over the counter. Um, you know, the, we knew that drugs were being uh, from the time that we kind of knew that these things existed. People were were using them, and it goes back, back thousands of years in some cultures as well. It really is a modern sort of post nineteen fifties thing, as you said. Probably nineteen fifties is when America starts to switch, and then Reagan probably takes it to a whole different level. I'm going to flip this slightly on the other side though, and say that a lot of the problems we have in sport is that people believe that uh, sport should be pious and clean in a way that the rest of life isn't. And, you know, I, I remember it's just someone, again, recently said something along the lines, and, they, and it's, this is said so often, but it was a major person who said, of course, sport and politics shouldn't mix. And I was like, well, you could argue that, I don't know, breakfast cereal and politics shouldn't mix, but politics mixes with everything because that's what politics is. Politics is the, you know, uh, it is the, the one thing that gets into every part of life and quite often when people say sport and politics shouldn't mix what they're really saying is i want sport to be pure and sport is not pure now if you know anything about the history of sport it has never been pure it was always absolutely like this one way or another you know wg grace is one of the most famous people in cricket and he is famous for cheating right um and and openly cheating not to mention, you know, the whole stories about potentially being involved in match fixing, potentially, you know, the kidnapping story of Billy Midwood, all these random things that, that, that WG Grace did. And I think we overlook that and they get laughed off us in the past, but they don't get laughed off in the present, right? At that time, people were really upset about uh, various things that had happened in, 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 in cricket. And now it's very similar, right? And people look at it the same way. So I think they want it to be pure. And the minute you talk about artificial um stimulus to make yourself better at a sport i think you are upsetting a lot of people my problem with drugs in sport is not the artificial um side of it i think it's quite interesting i remember reading an article i think it was a south american cyclist who he basically explained that he you he got to the tour de france level looked at his body and looked at everyone else's bodies and was like these people all have physical advantages that i don't have what am I going to have to do? But the only way I'm going to be able to do this is to rebuild my body using drugs. And he was willing to put his body through something that most human beings would never be willing to put their bodies through, right? Completely change his physiology, his shape, um, his muscle mass, everything he could, and then pump himself up full of drugs. And he was saying, well, wait a minute, I've done all this. Why should I lose to someone else just because they happen to be, um, uh, you know, slightly taller or slightly longer limbs or whatever that may be? I understand that argument. The problem with that argument is, is that who are the people who are going to be the victims of this? It's going to be 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds who will be exploited by coaches, by managers, by agents. It won't even be all the professionals. We won't ever know how many people have died because of, and we don't at this point, how many people have died because of performance-enhancing drugs. And I'll tell you, as someone who... As someone who knows uh, people who work in other sports at the amateur, you know, the top level amateur level, they're more terrified of uh, PEDs than anyone at the professional levels are because they can't even test for them. And they have no idea what these kids are putting in their bodies um, and everything else. So I think there, I, I get them the um, argument that some athletes would make, which is I'm willing to do, I'm, an, I'm a grown adult and I'm willing to do absolutely everything I can to be, you know, Lance Armstrong right? I, I will do everything I can in my, in my 
um, you know, a fit within my means to be able to do that. But I also understand that sport basically exploits young, poor athletes over and over again. They're the ones who are going to grow, you know, a third testicle. And, you know, they're the ones who are going to have long-term um, health issues and get cancer and have heart attacks when they shouldn't have heart attacks and everything else. So that's why I would be against PEDs. It's not specifically, I, I think you and I would, would say, it would be fascinating to see, it, let's say the 100 meter, how fast can we get 100 meters if you just like let everyone go wild? But is it worth you and I being exhilarated by the fact that we can get down to nine seconds if we then know in the background 7,000 kids have died from that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and people have long-term health um, aspects. I think that's the thing. For me, that is far more important than whether someone has cheated to win a race. I'm not as, because athletes cheat all the time. Like, I'm watching the NBA finals at the moment. Both teams are flopping like crazy. There was a great moment in the Lakers uh, Nuggets series where LeBron James flopped. It was blatant cheating. And then uh, Joker went down the other end and did the exact same thing. They both got fouls given on them. People cheat in sport. Every time you're watching sports, someone is cheating. So mm -hmm. the moral outbreak of, oh, it's drugs, so it's worse. I'm never, I've never quite been on that level. Well, certainly not, not in the last 10 or 15 years. But the other side of it that we don't even know and how many kids are there, you know, how many um, uh, East German kids never live past the age of 25 because someone was experimenting on their bodies? That's a real concern. I agree with you. And uh, this is what I... Look, when you give uh, an argument about the downstream effects of PEDs in terms of health consequences, that's a far better argument than the entire moral panic surrounding all yeah. these things. Like, for example, now NBA, NBA officially allows players to consume marijuana mm -hmm. between games. They do allow it. Uh, I'll give you an, a very famous um, example in the mixed martial arts world because the mixed martial arts world had a very weird fetish against marijuana. So there's a great fighter, Nick Diaz. He lost three, four years of his life because both the Diaz brothers, Nick, uh, Nick Diaz and Nate Diaz, they are very big proponents of marijuana. They are in the marijuana business. They smoke a joint all the time. And Nick lost a good chunk of his career for a stupid regulation over marijuana. Now, that's because of moral panic. Yeah, well, that, you go back to the NBA. I, I don't know how much you know about the 80s NBA. But the 80s NBA was a bit... Because two different leagues came together, right? One of the leagues was very, very... I mean, if you've ever watched a Will Smith movie, Will Smith, Will Ferrell movie, um, uh, you know, he talks, you can see how amateur the ABA was. And then the other one is the NBA, which was slightly more professional and a bit more dour. But again, was big party life. You know, you had these people just going from city to city to city. Um, they play night games all the time. So they're in mm. nightclubs late at night. It was 1970s, 1980s in America. There was cocaine everywhere, right? So the cocaine panic becomes this huge thing in American uh, in, in basketball because they're trying to sell basketball to uh, casual fans. And every now and again, a player has been caught with cocaine. The argument that you and I might, uh, um, might have suggested, which is why are we testing players for recreational drugs, right? Yeah. Like if they get arrested for it, they're kind of on their own, right? Um, but... That was the biggest issue I would have had. And as you said, the NBA very recently changed its mind on marijuana. That one, I always, I never quite got on top of that because I tell you what, as someone who's worked in professional sport, there's a huge percentage of alcoholics, right? I'm not saying yeah. there isn't also a huge percentage of drug addicts because 
there probably is as well, but there's a huge percentage of alcoholics, right? All the way through the system from players to coaches, to administration, to CEOs, to chairman, all the way up, there's alcoholics. And I understand it's legal, although not everywhere in cricket, but in most places in cricket, it is legal. But the point being is that these people are still under the influence and sometimes going out on the field and sometimes making decisions about people who go out on the field in that situation. But because of the legality difference there, there was obviously, you know, there was a bit of a moral panic to that side of things. I think that in modern sport, we're in a much better situation now that if someone someone is caught using um, cocaine and may, maybe you're getting tested for a PED and it comes up with cocaine, you'd be much mm -hmm. better off to go and get them help, right? Then suspend them and ruin their life. And and that's what you, that was what was happening. We've seen a lot of very good athletes over the years. And in fact, most of the cricketers who've been caught um, on drugs have been caught on recreational drugs. In some cases, as you said, maybe are semi-legal or even legal at times in the places that they've been or in their own home country. Um, you know, like if who was it? Was it the Pakistani players that were caught smoking a joint on, on a beach in the West Indies? Well, I don't yeah. think they were the first people to do that. I could be wrong. I don't think they were the first. And not not only is that, I, I think Vaseem Akram in his recent book talked about his struggles with cocaine, right? Mm. He he he's very open about it, and uh, he he even spoke about it in interviews. And there is an empathy issue over here. I I absolutely agree with you. The which is why I have a huge problem with the moral panic surrounding all of this, and it muddles the discussion of PEDs yeah. in sport, which is why I use marijuana as an example is because as somebody who follows this, it, it ruined mixed martial arts because a lot of mixed martial artists would uh, may not smoke a joint, but they would use CBD and even mm -hmm. CBD was banned and CBD does help them relax and works with a slight ache and pain over here, even if it doesn't. And even if it is a placebo, what the hell is it doing any, you know, it was not yeah. doing any harm. And, now with the whole PED question. Now, I don't know if you've looked at Luke's point of view and I don't want to be here speaking for Luke, but uh, Luke Thomas comes from an uh, argument that even if you look at it from a pers performance enhancement perspective, how much of a performance enhancement in totality uh, are, we, are we really looking at the data closely? So where do we make that performance enhancement aspect itself? Because it is literally called a performance enhancement drug. So yeah. what is that aspect? Like, so where do we stand on that? Where do, we, where do we start there? The problem with that is I get Luke's argument and I don't disagree with his basic premise. The problem is that there is no way of testing it properly because you would have to, you would have to get like 200 people in a study and dope half of them and not dope the other half, right? And you'd have to do that over three, four, five studies before we knew anything. I think if you look at the top of the Tour de France listings, I think if you look at the um, uh, the 100 meter finals, the swimming, I think we have our answer of whether it helps or not. How much it helps, again, I'm kind of on Luke's side there. I, I, I think it makes sense. I've read... Um, you know, read books and articles and, and seen documentaries about people who have taken them, test them. They all say that there are huge advance, uh, huge advantages. To... So, yeah, I think these articles and, you know, seen all these things online, um, you know, and documentaries and everything else. The people who have suggest that there is an advantage. The other thing I would say is that athletes do... Um, 
things over a short period of time, like these other shorts, right? All those sorts of things. Athletes believe in that sort of thing. These things cost an absolute fortune, right? And the way that you have to get them done is so dodgy. And you could go to jail in some cases for even, you know, taking these drugs across lines, country lines, um, ordering them in the mail, all these sorts of things. I find it impossible to think that these athletes are all doing that and it's not really helping them, right? Now, is placebo a part? Yes, but there's placebo on, I, I know, you know, do you know the science behind the um, cold baths? You know, uh, athletes who like to go in yeah. the cold bath after play. The science yeah. on that is a bit wishy, but yeah, I think it was Glenn McGrath went in the bath after every game and he he said it completely helped me. And there are other players I've talked to who are just like, I was just in a cold bath. I don't see how it helped me and, and, and anything else. I think there's there's a, a lot of evidence to suggest that PEDs do help you. At what level, we don't know because we don't know how much people are doping. We also know that the majority of times when they get to the competition, they're not doping anymore. The majority of the doping is done beforehand. And I think that part of the reason that Luke might be making that sort of a case is that more often or not, you're talking about they've already tapered off that drug. But the effects of them taking that drug and training their body up to a level that they wouldn't have been able to train it to otherwise can't be um can't be understated right if you have the ability to let, let's say I, I i have no idea but let's say um to to uh, to train for the tour de france you have to do um eight hours of training a day right and with a ped you're, you can do nine or nine and a half hours and at a higher level even when you go off that drug you've trained your body at such a level that no one else will be able to to be able to match I find it almost impossible to think that there isn't an advantage. The other thing I would say is in sport, I think what do people believe a lot of time is that what you what you're looking for is like a ten percent advantage, right? You want to be, you know what I mean? Like I, I was bowling at 150 kilometers an hour. Now I want to take a PED so I can bowl at 155 kilometers an hour, right? 151 for a longer period of time is still very good. Right. And I think even those small, small adjustments um, really do help in a way that possibly if you, um, you know, if you haven't talked to athletes a lot or you haven't spent as much time around athletes, you don't understand the, the tiny little things that they are looking to do. I mean, in, in Australian sport, we were always obsessed with one percenters. You have a look at what, you know, uh, the Houston Astros did in baseball. You have a look at what the Sky team did in cycling. You know, everyone is looking for that millimeter advantage and i find it hard to believe that training yourself with peds over not training yourself with peds doesn't give you a millimeter a foot whatever it may be over the course of your race over your fight over your sport whatever that, that advantage um i don't think it's a placebo i think if it was a placebo i think the, you know the the industry itself would have kind of died off after a certain point and you get a couple of people doing it but not on this scale so what do you make about testing protocols? Now, obviously, in the case of cricket, we have WADA, right? The World Anti-Doping Agency that, that takes care of everything. And uh, from what I understood, the ICC website talks about uh, being a signatory to the WADA in July 2006. Uh, it's very interesting. The first point they mention is maintain the integrity of the sport of cricket. It's very interesting. Usage mm. of words. Integrity of the sport of 2006. Is that is that when it, you you found it? Yeah, they signed the anti-doping uh, thingy. On, well, here you go. Here's a good one for, about that quote. 2006, they signed that. It took them yeah. until 2007 to test players' blood. 
So 11 <laughs> years. So they were so worried about the integrity of cricket that they didn't test players' blood. That's a whole – and look, I'm sure you had a great question, but this let me go on a mini round here. Sure. The truth of this is that – and it's not the only sport. Cricket's not the only sport. The NFL did it. I think they might have done it in some of um, uh, some of the mixed martial arts as well. Maybe boxing might have done this as well, is that for a long time they purposely weren't testing athletes for certain things because they knew that it would come back, right? So if you know that your blood's not going to be tested, you just put the thing in that won't be found in your urine, right? So that's a, oh, it's almost like a gentleman's agreement. And the reason they do this, and this is why WADA is one of – the fact that water exists is one of the most amazing things in the world to me. How it slipped through, how it got funded, how it got money, how it got power is so remarkable because essentially sport doesn't want to find people um, uh, doping. That's the worst thing that you can have. There's a great conversation that Dick Pound had with, I think it was the PGA boss or someone to do with American golfing. It might have been European golfing. And Dick Pound was in, in charge of water at the time. And he said, golf is a sport where when you're playing, you mark down your own card when you've done something wrong. Like it is, you know, thought to be the most um, honest sport there is, right? Why don't you get the why don't you get the golfers to tell to say when another golfer is 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 doping or you know and doing all that sort of stuff? And the, the guy from the golf was like, we don't want that. Then we'll just be in the news with all the baseballers and the cyclists and the swimmers and the sprinters, right? They didn't want bad publicity. And so WADA is such a remarkable organization that it exists because it is independent in many ways. It's got some flaws and some really interesting flaws, but because it exists, it does actually allow for anyone to be caught at any time, unless you're a sport who says, yeah, yeah, we'll let WADA in, but can they only test some of the things? Because we don't want to know the answers to everything else at the moment. And I, and I, I do find that absolutely fascinating. But but uh, but the, the WADA side of things is that essentially water's remit is too small right what you actually what it needs to be is it, this isn't the problem with doping in sport is no longer about doping in sport which is a really weird thing to say i'm talking about the top level professional we already talked about at the kids level it's certainly the doping the top level professional sport the problem isn't doping and in individual cases of doping it's not Andre Russell missing a meeting and getting suspended. It's not Shane Warne. It's not, you know, um, who was it? There was a, was it a Sri Lankan player? Took, a Pakistani player took the wrong pills recently or, or whatever. That's not the problem with doping sport. The problem with doping sport at the moment is that it's a massive business and it's, uh, it's a business of corruption, right? And that WADA can, can, can basically is set up to go after an individual person who is doping. It is not set up to go after a massive corrupt system. And that is where doping has got to do, which does go back to the point from before. I don't think something becomes a massive billion dollar industry um, if it's, you know, if, if there's nothing to it, unless it, unless it is, I don't know, the, uh, uh, I'm trying to think, unless it's like, you know, the Gwyneth Paltrow um, crystals of sport. And I don't think athletes would be spending all that money if they didn't think they were getting anything out of it. But that's just a really interesting aside. I completely went, in about seven different directions there and ruined your question. No problem. No problem. So what I was going to bring up was that, and you actually kind of made a point by talking about how organizations tell, uh, like sporting organizations, let's say NBA, NFL, NHL, or ICC, they would tell these different testing. Like in the case of UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship, they work with USADA. They don't work with WADA. Yep. And USADA is even stricter than WADA, by the way. USADA is like a pain in the ass on steroids. 
because they are outside your door all the time you literally have an app every single ufc fighter has to basically put in their location all the time it's actually very annoying i think it's no, that's the same on... that's the same as wada i think wada yeah. has the same thing because that's what um andre russell got suspended on was that he was never putting his stuff in and he was disappearing it, it's ridiculous i yeah. i just believe this well, this level of uh, interference in a sportsman's life i i would just oppose it purely from a privacy perspective yes but you are not a professional athlete who's grown up in that situation where you've got a fat man on a couch right um who's critiquing your physical prowess athletes do live in a different world than the rest of us right and also they are paid to live in that world so i get your point and and it, so i don't know if you know this but this was a big reason that drugs testing wasn't pushed in cricket early on it's because Sachin Tendulkar specifically didn't want anyone to have access to where he was at any one time right and it wasn't just Sachin it was I think it was you know a bunch of Indian top level stars and I think they were right to have that problem I think what Wada eventually said was well if we can if we can stop people getting Michael Jordan's information uh we should be able to stop people getting your information but I I do think and, and look this is this is the next step because what you've just said is really interesting there. So there are sports in the world now where, and I know this is this is coming to cricket, but it's certainly coming to other sports as well a little bit earlier, where, where athletes are like, no, I'm not going to tell you how tall I am. I'm not going to tell you how much body fat I have, right? I'm not going to tell you. I, I remember my wife saying this, you know, because my wife's a lawyer and she said something really interesting to me one day. She said, do they test players' eyesight in batting? Like, does the cricket board test that? Because then you would know if someone's eyesight's going. And I said, no, they don't. And then she said, they'll probably try and do that one day. But actually, if I was a professional batter, I wouldn't allow that. I would, I would go the other way. I would do it personally myself. So I knew if my eyesight was having problems. And we do know Ross Taylor was a perfect example of a player who certainly was struggling. Although when you look at the numbers, he averaged almost exactly the same before and after. But in his mind, he was really starting to struggle because of, because of his eyes, uh, because of his eye issue. But there is no doubt that there are athletes that are very concerned with what the data is being uh, being collected on them and that they think is their personal data. That, I think, will change a little bit. That might go back to where WADA and, uh, and all the individual nations um, involved in that will actually, they might find it harder to get players to tell them exactly where they are. But the way that players are trained, right, and the way that players, think about this whether it be the IPL or pretty much any American um, sport, uh, you have no say over which team you go to if you are the best 18-year-old in the world, right? So if you're the best at what you do, uh, whatever Indian billionaire wants to pay the most money for you, you have to go there. You might not have family and friends there. You might not actually want to play for that team or that coach, whatever, you don't have to go. And in America, they take it a step f further and they say, if you're the best 18-year-old in the world, we're going to send you to the worst team. The actual worst team is going to get your rights and you're going to have to go to, I mean, look at Victor Wembanyama, the NBA player. Well, soon to be NBA player. Uh, he's the, he's maybe the biggest star in professional sports in the next 15 years. If he can be as good as it looks like he's going to be, being that he's a European um, and he's going to star in America in what is, you know, one of the, the fastest growing sports in the world. He could be one of the biggest stars in the world. He's about to go to San Antonio. The only thing I know about San Antonio is old Western movies and they have a basketball team, right? I'm not saying it's a crap place. I don't want to slag off San Antonio. 
How long before 18 year olds all rise up as one and go, fuck that. I want to go to New York. I want to go to Philadelphia because I got family there, right? Oh, I went on a holiday once to Miami. I'd like to go back there and play for the team, right? Same with these IPL players, right? If I'm that best 18-year-old player in the world and I'm the India under-19 captain and, and I played one season of SMAT and I averaged 80 and I've got a strike rate of 200, I want to go to Rajasthan. I want to go where I can make some money, right? And we don't do that. And the drugs thing is just another part of that, right? It, it's all we control these people's bodies and their decisions and their autonomy over and over and over again. Um, and I do wonder if athletes will ever fight back. And I feel like they are already. Um, but it's a really, really interesting way. They do think differently to us athletes, even if um, they might be as angry as you just were about, you know, those sorts of things. I just find it appalling that I have to give my location to someone all the time, especially in the case of cricket, where governments are involved, like it or not. Uh, the government knowing where I am all the time and, and and people are just fine with it. I don't know what's wrong with cricket players. It's all I well, can they, say. I mean, to be fair, they weren't fine with it. As I said, they did fight that. But um, ultimately, WADA has, from what I can tell, the water around the world has been absolutely brilliant at keeping that information private. There will be a leak one day and there'll be yes. a day on, there'll be a day on telegram or WhatsApp or, or Twitter or, you know, um, Substack notes or whatever it is called where on one day you'll be able to know where every professional athlete in the world is <laughs> um, because that will be leaked. But they have been really, really good at that so far. I think it only takes one leak though for the, that whole system to fall apart. Um, uh, and again, I get it, and I do understand why they're doing it from a doping perspective. But what, what it comes down to is I think that the majority of the doping now is probably done officially. So th I don't know how much you know about Spanish sports. I you don't know, know a lot. If you go through the history of Spanish sports, they suddenly had an incredible rise. Best tennis players in the world, the best basketballers in the world. Uh, much better at sports that they hadn't been particularly good at before. Their footballers obviously completely took over world football. That happened to be at a very similar time when uh, they were the epicenter of performance enhancing drugs, right? And, you know, it's a fun game. There's a, there's a Spanish doctor and I always forget his name. Well, I'm not sure he's even a doctor, but I, he's at least called that. If you Google his name and your favorite Spanish athlete, there will be an article linking the two of these people over and over again. Right. And it's heartbreaking as a as a sports fan to be like, oh, my God, I love Spanish sports. And now I have to find out that it's nonsense. You could make a similar argument that something happened in Australian sport in the 80s and 90s as well. I don't know if if the drugs were as involved, but we have seen countries suddenly get really, really good at it. It's no longer the case of the, as I said, the individual athletes. I think that is a much smaller part of what is happening now. I think the bigger part is this sort of institutionalized doping that I think is um, something and I, you know, we we haven't had a scandal in cricket yet. We've had micro moments. We've had people taking the wrong pills. We've had people, you know, we've had two Jamaican cricketers now um, be suspended, uh, um, you know, uh, under um, under the code. That's a really interesting thing, being what we know about, uh, you know, other uh, other sports. Um, but we don't we don't have anything concrete in cricket. But I find it impossible to think that they haven't been doing it. The one thing I would say is that. Athletes in general are much more used to taking pills than 
normal people. I would say the vast majority of players I know, and certainly past players, are pill poppers, right? Now, are they doing it illegally? Probably not, where they get all their stuff. But they, I've got friends who take probably the daily, double the daily amount of anti-inflammatories every day, right? For, former cricketers. And they do it so that they can get out of bed, right? They do it so they can do all this sort of stuff. Um, I don't think it's a bit like, remember in the old days, you talked about the moral panic, moral panic about drugs is really interesting because everyone was worried about all the illegal drugs that people used to take. Right. So it was cocaine. It was heroin. It was marijuana. It was whatever speed, all those sorts of drugs. What was the crisis that America has had over the last 25 years? And that I've seen in other places a little bit as well was of course prescribed drugs being taken too much. Right. And we don't, part of the reason that that was allowed to happen is we saw that as okay because they're actually taking legal drill drugs, but too many of them. Whereas if the same people had been taking illegal drugs, we would have seen them as not okay. And there's so much gray area in that sort of stuff. And the reason I bring that up is if you are a professional athlete and to get out on the field, there's a great story about um, Mashrafi Mortaza about how long it took him to get out of bed every morning to go and play for Bangladesh. Right. These guys are in incredible pain. They are essentially donating their body to to 15 years of earning. That's what professional athletes do. They donate their body so that they can earn more money in 15 years and set up hopefully their life, their family's life. And if they're lucky, the next generation and the generation after that. Right. And very few are that lucky. And because of that, they are pumping their body full of stuff over and over again. They have experts coming in, telling them that things are fine and all this sort of stuff. It's a very, very complex world uh, when it comes to what a professional athlete will or won't put in their body. But uh, the organization bit is very interesting because NBA is very lax when it comes to, you know, getting their players tested at a certain level. If, in fact, you would not believe it that uh, when some when they did a case study of how many basketball athletes get caught, uh, they they actually found very few of them. And again, this was something that Luke had pointed out that where he had said that the paradox of drug testing is that, you know, the less an organization has athletes with positive tests, the likelier the use is rampant because it's mm. just that uh, the organization like NBA is very lax when it comes to testing their athletes because they just don't want, like you said, you were right when you said they don't want that shit to stick on them because mm. they have, there, and it all stems from that moral panic and that that veneer of morality that everybody has around it. And and people don't realize sport is the one thing. Now, it, I, this is not about politics. Sport is the one thing that unites all sorts of people. Mm. Because you could be a left wing guy, a libertarian, a right wing guy, whatever. You enjoy sport. So. All sorts of moral issues, whether they're left-wing moral issues, right-wing moral issues, libertarian moral issues, you know, all sorts of... I'll give you an example, right? So the Indian team kneeling for the BLM or people uh, finding uh, the national anthem being insulted in the United States of America. For example, there were mm -hmm. different levels of outrage from different corners about different things. What that shows is that all sorts of political people watch sport. 
so sport gets attacked from all corners mm. and in that case organizations like the nba or icc they would definitely not want anything to stick on them so why the hell would they test for anything then right exactly and that's what i mean that's where the water thing is kind of gone beyond and i think water was very good at olympic sports but if you're the nfl right and or the icc you actually don't want those sorts of things and i don't think people understand that what especially now Five years ago, it was slightly different. Five years ago, you and I were the target audience for sport. We're no longer the target audience for sport. The target audience for sport now is women and children, right? And what they worked out is that, it, it, that women and children like sport, but it wasn't marketed at them and it wasn't sent to them. And so they didn't spend as much money on it. And they basically got as many, you know, white, straight men as they could in America to watch the NBA. What did they need next? They needed gay people. They needed the black community to support it even more. They needed Latin American people to come in. They needed women and children to come in to not even see it as a black versus white sport, right? This is how sports are now marketed. And so when you're marketing in that way, it is even more important to keep everything as family friendly as possible. And you and I might think, we, we you and I might have slightly different kinds of views on drugs than a, a normal person would have, right? That, very different whole, yeah you're being nice then, <laughs> then, then across the whole world right i think there's lots of people who think like us but we, we probably are in in more of a minority in that sort of point of view but i think there's neither of us if we were marketing the uh the uh you know world oh, cricket yeah. we wouldn't want we wouldn't want um let, who's, who's a good one um we wouldn't suddenly want um a bunch of you know andre russell and ab devilliers and rashid khan and Virat Kohli and um Shane Warne and, you know, whoever it may be, we wouldn't want them to suddenly get any of those players to get caught with steroids, right? Or cocaine, right? Just because if we're marketing the league, it's like, oh, okay, now we have to, now we have to mop it and change it and everything else. And the NBA that you talked about before is so interesting because it is such a progressive league in, in so many ways. You know, the marijuana use is one of them. You know, they put the black, you know, cricket had a couple of performative things about Black Lives Matters, despite the fact that, one of the reasons that cricket is such a big sport is because of black people. It still just kind of pushed it to the side a little bit and said, you can put your hand up if you want. Look what they did in the NBA finals in the bubble. It was all over. The, you couldn't, the, the players had slogans on their back, right? But they did that in part because they were marketing to this new audience of people who were younger, who were more socially progressive. And they were saying to them, this is your sport as well. It wasn't, it wasn't an accident. Right. I mean, Phil Jackson, the NBA coach came out this week and said, Oh, you know, it turned off so many fans. Yeah, they they made that decision. There's a reason why Nike advertised their stuff with women in it. That's because every man in the world who's ever wanted to buy a pair of Nike shoes had bought it. Eventually, they had to start selling more and more stuff to women. And women had changed how they wanted to be marketed to as well. They didn't just want to be pretty women in the corner. They wanted to be shown sweating and running and, and, and all that sort of stuff. These things aren't accidents, right? And it's the same with, with the testing. The more you test, the more you will find. As you said, if you ever get to the point in, in and cricket and NFL are really interesting from this perspective, and uh, you know, and so is some of the mixed martial arts, some of the MMA stuff as well. It's really interesting from that point of view, which is it doesn't help them at all to be able to do that. The only time cricket or the NFL or some of these other sports around the world will start to test will be when young athletes start to drop dead and their autopsies done. Up until that point, they are willing to push it as far as possible. And the best example of this is CTE. 
right? You have a look at those. It wasn't an issue for the NFL for generations. They would make jokes about punch drunk players and all oh, that poor old guy. He never really recovered after he played and all this sort of stuff. When does it become an issue? When people start to die, when it starts to become public. That's what sport cares about, right? That's, it is a business. And, you know, to go back to the whole thing about sport being moral and pure, right? I was at the Oval for the World Test Championship final. The Oval was the first sporting ground, uh, cricket ground, but I think sporting ground probably in the world, major one that had a fence around it and that you had to buy tickets to come in, right? We're talking about almost 200 years ago. I can't remember the exact dates, but towards closer to 200 years ago than 100 years ago, certainly, obviously. And from that perspective, right, from the moment that starts happening, it's a business. Doesn't mean it doesn't have religious, ethnic, nation building, um, identity, uh, moral parts of it. it. It does, but it's a business, right? And at the end of the day, it's like it's like the car companies who could make the cars a lot safer, but would sell less cars. So they make the cars just unsafe enough so that we will buy them, right? And we'll, there's an acceptable amount of deaths that will come from road safety, right? That's the line that you're doing. That's essentially what a lot of sports are doing with these pro athletes. They're going, okay, well, at the moment, it's fine. And, you know, we'll, 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 we'll test and we'll make it look like we're involved. But actually, we won't do that much because we don't want it to come back on us that we are an unclean sport because no one follows cycling anymore without the thought that everything is wrong in cycling, right? No, like so how long would it take for cycling to ever rehabilitate itself beyond that? And if you want to know the best one about cricket, it's match fixing, right? I've got so many friends who will say to me, the problem with cricket is uh, the problem with cricket and match fixing is that in every other sport, everyone's cheating to win. And in cricket specifically, they've been caught again and again with players cheating to lose, right? That is something that for casual fans is a bit of an issue. Now, it's not a big enough story consistently in the way that the doping and cycling has been, but it's there and casual fans have it in the back of their head and it only takes one more player doing something stupid in a public way and getting caught that it becomes the narrative again. And once that's the narrative, it becomes harder to get advertisers. It gets harder to be get, uh, you know, streaming deals go down, TV deals go down and everything else. There is a direct correlation between those things. I, I understand that. And to me, I, I, I'll just say this, you know, something funny. I, uh, in my research for this podcast, when I was trying to look up at things that happen and don't happen, I just started cracking up. The world darting agency, the darting federation, the dart sport, they have an anti-doping code. What the hell are they doing with that? They're just throwing darts at the wall. They have an anti-doping code. I mean, when I started, I, I, I had like a one hour laughing session when I went through their doping code. I'm like, they have a doping code for darts. What kind of strength do you need for darts? What kind of I position? don't know. I mean, I would be fascinated to know if anyone's ever been caught, like, actually on performance-enhancing drugs for darts, what they would be used for. I think that now, and, and as I said, I think WADA is wonderful. I think it's an amazing organization, if only because nothing else would ever call uh, major sporting organizations into question rather than what do you know what i mean it does it better than anyone else because there's no one else looking there's no like global corruption agency 
right? Trying to stop anything in sports. You just have WADA. So I think it's great. But I do think that part of the problem is, my guess is that in order for darts to get some level of funding, maybe to be seen as a sport, maybe to be able to get tax breaks, my guess is that they probably have to adhere to that sort of stuff, which is remarkable. Look, we, the, the other thing I would say is you're probably right on darts, but I don't know because I'm not very good at darts and I, I don't know what you might need. But it was that fascinating article that ESPN wrote a couple of years ago about how chess players lose weight when they play chess, right? And it makes sense. If you've ever, I'm not a great chess player, but I taught my kids how to play it. And, you know, I get it. You know, those games are quite intense. Um, and if you're playing it for long periods of time, I understand it. I do think that there is, even in something like chess, and video games is probably another one, right? Where there are probably things that you can use in those situations that will help you, right? You know, I don't know, um, stuff for ADHD. ADHD? Yeah, I was going to say uh, stuff for Adderall. ADHD, Adderall, Adderall, all that sort of stuff Adderall. would be my guess. For chess and darts probably helps, right? Uh, they test them for video games too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I assume they would have to. That's what I mean. It all comes back to like, it's got, WADA's got so big and powerful that they're, they're the main thing now, right? But the point is that what I think I have learned from professional Adobe, and remember, I started as someone who thought cricket was a skill game and drugs didn't matter. To go through all the other way to now, uh, I now understand micro-athleticism, right? And decision-making and, uh, you know, the decision-making athleticism. So to go take it back to, you know, uh, the NBA game, you know, Nikola Jokic is six foot 11. He's probably bigger than that. Weighs 270 pounds. He has the lowest recorded jump of any modern NBA player, right? The lowest recorded jump. Two-time MVP, probably about to win the NBA finals, right? Watch him on the court and how often people who are quicker than him can't catch up with him. And the reason they can't catch up with him is because his athleticism is actually that his brain tells his body to move before other people. If it was a race and they were all just hearing a, a, a siren, he'd be well behind them. But that's not what he's doing. He's processing the game. And you remember Perlo, the uh, Italian footballer. Again, not a particularly fast player. But you could watch Perlo get himself into the right position beforehand because of these other kinds of athleticism. So one thing I would say about, dr about drugs in sport is most of the stuff that we did was making you taller, making you stronger, making you faster, you know, making you more endurance. The next wave is going to be, you know, almost Elon Musk putting a chip in your brain to make you, you know, to be able to make you react quicker and understand things quicker and process information or whatever that may be. It will never stop. There's no way of catching this. I think you need a prohibition on it only to stop it being so widespread that we have this epidemic of, you know, busted 22-year-olds who can't have normal jobs because their brains are scattered by some random, you know, uh, doctor just injecting it, whatever he could into them. But we're never going to actually stop people from doping because you get paid a lot of money to be very good at cricket. And a lot of people will do everything they can to be as good at cricket as possible. And because of those two things, in, it, it's always going to be out there. And so whether it be darts or chess or whatever it may, or leg spin, I do think there are probably enhancements that you can uh, find that will make it easier for you to be good at what you do. And so because of that, I think it's always going to be around. Um, and I don't think there'll ever be a testing that will be able to catch everything because if it is a billion dollar industry and it's probably multi-billion at this point, if, if it is an industry on that level, they're always going to be ahead of anyone who's doing the testing, just the same way that any um, 
you know, alcohol or drugs um, people, the people who want to sell it and the audience who wants to buy it are always going to be one step ahead of the police trying to stop that. Absolutely. In fact, the the famous uh, saying in 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 the hush hush circles of sport is that the richest ones, bodies or players, never get caught is because they are rich. They have enough money to use drugs that can be masked properly, that can bypass the testing protocols, even the strictest testing protocols. And the ones who get caught are always the unfortunate plebeians who don't have the money and they have to use shortcuts and they are the ones who are suffering. So there's already, already like we're seeing the tennis players, probably the first ones of this, of literally using every part of sports science they can to push their body. I'm not saying that those athletes are on drugs or are not on drugs, but there's already a divide there of what Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal um, and, you know, Novak Djokovic, I mean, he probably won't put anything in his body, wouldn't even put um, a vaccine in his body, but, um, uh, you know, there is already a divide there, right, of what those guys can do. And you look at, you know, you go back, but what I would say is that, Anytime I hear of a systematic um, advantage, so when a team is so they're doing every they're crossing every um, uh, you know they're crossing every T and dotting every I, right? So Houston Astros was the one in baseball. The I read the book on the Houston Astros about how good they were, and I was like, I wonder how they're cheating, right? <laughs> and a lot of that is being a cynical old sports journalist, right? But a lot of it is because I've been studying this stuff for 10 and 15 years. And I've always been more interested in the corruption side than the drug side, just probably because of what we've discussed today. Also, because cricket hasn't had as many drugs. So it's hard for me to, to sink my teeth into it in the same way as where it's had plenty of corruption anytime. Um, and, but, but you, you know, when you get to a certain point, my first thought now is, oh, this team's doing everything right. I wonder what else they're doing. What's the stuff they haven't told this journalist? What's the stuff that is proprietary, right? And that they are doing. There is already an advantage to having millions of dollars, right? Over another team. And as you said, it is very possible now that that is one of the advantages to being a huge sporting body is the ability to stay ahead of the testers, right? And we've talked about Russia, Nike, China, Germany, big Big countries, right? I, I remember doing the story on this. Um, I want to say he was just, I can't remember where he was from. He might have been from Ethiopia. He was a runner. And I was trying to contact him. And so I had to find his agent. And so I contacted his agent. And then afterward, his agent never got back to me. So I Googled his agent again. And his agent had just been suspended for two years for um, doping people, right? And running things. So this guy, from what I could tell, I had been going over to Ethiopia and finding the best runners, taking them back to Europe and putting the best drugs in them, right? And he made millions off it, right? It was a brilliant idea. And that, you know, that, that side of thing is, it's, what is he doing then? He's essentially an entrepreneur, right? He's no different than a, almost a common drug um, uh, dealer at that point, or the many dark ways that very rich people make their money, right? He found, he found that there was a talent base here. And if he just help that talent base a little bit more with professional training and a little bit of a juice up, he could get even more out of them. Money matters, right? Those guys, Mm -hmm. a lot of them wouldn't have gone on to be great runners in their own country, not because they weren't there. They just didn't have the system around them that could help them. And he put that together. Money matters in sport. And go back to the point you're talking about with Luke's article before, or Luke's thoughts before. 
as someone who has covered sport really, really closely for a long period of time, money almost always tops everything else. And it's sad to say, because we all want to go, oh, the, you know, there's a great young athlete, but you have a look at some of these young athletes from, from poor backgrounds, right? And quite often at a very young age, um, they get backed by someone, right? And my favorite one is Muhammad Ali. We know of Muhammad Ali now. We know he comes from, I think his father was a, a paint, uh, a, a sign writer. So not from a poor background, but certainly not from a rich background in any way. When he shows promise as a boxer, I think four men, I want to say this, I think it was four guys, basically invested in him like he was a business. Mm -hmm. Right? That If they hadn't have done that and he'd been on his own, does it become the Muhammad Ali we know today? Probably not. Yeah. To me, just to take on, you know, you spoke about Elon Musk. A lot of people are not realizing this is because my background is in moral and ethics in, in terms of philosophy. And what are you going to do when CRISPR becomes a average reality? CRISPR is a technology, right? Where you splice the gene up and you yeah. literally are going to create babies. Like, What if some parent goes to a doctor and the parent tells the doctor, hey, I want uh, my baby to look like Shubman Gill. Um, uh, hit the six like uh, Surya Kumar Yadav. Is that cheating now? That's well, done. you know, that's already happened, right? So, yeah. I mean, China and Germany, and yeah, Germany and Russia have already tried that. And, yeah. and with mixed results, but I think at times it's been quite successful, right? You know, yeah. if we can convince the male basketball star to uh, marry a female basketball star, we're going to assume that the, the height yeah. of our overall players, if, if we get it through, we now understand that it's not just about that whereas i think in the east german days they did think i think they thought like horse racing they could breed athletes but horses don't live lives right horses don't discover video games and get a porn addiction and you know start stamp collecting and all those horses just run or don't run right so it's not quite the same um but we've already seen that i mean what you're talking about is that next level of can we do it what is it about you know i've always thought that so we know that there is fast twitch athletes, right? Um, and then you have the, um, uh, you know, the Kenyan runners with the, the really small calves, right? Is there a way of combining those two things with science in the future where you could have someone who has the fast twitch skills to run, I don't know, 1500 meter race, right? But still with the very small calves so they don't have to lift up as much power, right? Is that, is that possible? Is it? Is it possible to have a sprinter who has huge thigh muscles and not very big calves and that to be an advantage in sprinting or whatever else? These things are, people are already, this isn't me just making this stuff up. People are already thinking about this sort of stuff and that will be the next one. And as you said, is that moral, right? Um, you know, it, it, Serena Williams and, and Venus Williams was the way that they were trained moral, right? They were basically had to give up on a very normal life at a very young age to be the people they have. You know, Jamal Murray in, in the NBA playoffs, you hear the stories about his father purposely hurting him so that he could have be better with pain management, right? You, you know, the stories about boxers and their and their and their, you know, their trainers and what they put them through in order to be able to do all these sorts of things. So much of sport is immoral. 
right? And so much of sport is not fair to begin with. And this is why this conversation is such a fascinating one because I think so many people come into it with one mindset, whereas I think as we probably proved in this chat, it just goes off in so many different, the more you pull at the thread of this, the more you're just like, oh, I hadn't, you know, so why is it okay? Why is it okay for one athlete to basically uh, put uh, anti-inflammatories in their body at triple the le uh, the, the pre prescribed amount, and no one says anything about it. But one other athlete, he lose he ha deals with his pain through marijuana, and so he's suspended for a year. Like once you start to pull on those threads, it's like, oh, okay, we're through the looking glass a little bit here. And that's why it is such a fascinating thing. That's why modern sport is so fascinating because every uh, Jonathan Liu, you know, the great sports writer, me and him were talking about it once, and you know, we're talking about leaving sports writing, and he said that occasionally he thinks to himself, yeah, I should leave sports writing and go do something else but then the other side is like i get to write about everything because of sport i get to write about fashion i get to write about culture i get write, write about race i get to write about business i get to write about science i get to write about doping all these different things they all end up back in sport yeah and to me people say oh kushal you're too libertarian that's why you don't have a problem with these things no 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 my background in moral philosophy gives me these lessons that that I just can't support something like this. Like, look, you, the drugs in sport, PEDs in sport are going to increase now. And this is my reason why I say it's going to increase now. T20 cricket is just the tip of the iceberg. The absolute shitloads of cricket these players are playing mm. now, maybe not the batsman, but the fast bowler is a rare species in cricket. You expect... It's not the injury that bothers the fast bowler. It's the recovery that bothers the fast bowler. So just think, think like this. So how do UFC athletes wiggle out of getting uh, out of the USADA pool? Uh, people can check this. This is literally, this literally has happened. Connor did it, the biggest MMA star. And now he's back in the USADA pool. He says, I'm retiring. Yeah. The moment you say you're retiring as a fighter, you're out of the USADA pool. You can recover from your injury, which would have normally taken you because of USADA protocols, let's say a year and a half, okay? You lose. Now, in Connor's case, he doesn't do it for the money because Connor's like crazy rich anyway. Mm. But the point is, you could say I'm retiring from fighting. You could use PEDs. You could recover faster. You could then join the USADA protocol again faster. You could then go into the USADA protocol again uh, test normal and then come back. What's the point of this nonsense? I mean, I don't understand the stupidity and it is all because of a stupid fucking moral panic that these people have. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely understand. I think in, I also think in something like MMA um, that, that there's going to be so many other issues that are going to come up right in in the future especially to do with long-term injuries to athletes and everything else that i don't think doping is i, I don't think the average mma person fan is as anti-doping as other sports jared i want you to show you something mm. this you know and people who are listening to the audio version just google this mma fighters pre and post usada <laughs> just look at the photos <laughs> yeah it's the photos said everything. I mean, this is Vitor Belfort. This is pre-USADA. 
Yeah. That does go back to, to, to Luke's article that you were re re referencing before. I think we've seen enough photos of this over the time to be like, there does seem to be something slightly different about that. Look, the other thing is that MMA is going to have the same problem that every other sport eventually comes through, which rugby is now going through, which the NFL yes. just went through, which cricket will have with bouncers eventually, which yes. is that we are, forget performance enhancing drugs for a moment. You know, there's this there's this argument that fast bowling fast bowlers were quicker in the 70s and 80s than they are now. It's ludicrous, right? No, they weren't. Ludicrous. They were fast bowlers of the pace of some of the fastest bowlers now. There's a handful of them. Now there are now there are guys who can't get professional contracts who bowl at over 85 miles an hour. That's how much cricket has changed, right? In the in the old days, you'd be one of the fastest bowlers in the world. Now you can't even get a professional contract because there's so many of them out there. Because of that we get getting to the point where fast bowlers already look at this last test match. We had a little bit of uneven bounce. It was not a good pitch for about two days. And then weirdly enough, it settled down a little bit, but for two days, a little bit of un uh, un uneven bounce. We almost lost Labashain, Rahane, Shadul Takua, and Travis Head, right? From the game, from injuries, just because the pitch wasn't doing exactly what it was supposed to do, but because all the bowlers are over 85 miles an hour. Right? There's no slow people to face anymore. Even Shardul, who's not even a frontline bowler, has decent pace on him now. And someone like Shardul 30 years ago would have been bowling at about 70 to 75 miles an hour. Gavin Every, Larson kind of a thing. Yeah, everyone has got faster, right? We've already had Phil Hughes die. We've, we've already gone through that first one, that wave. Yes. It will happen. Rugby. So rugby now is trying to make sure that you can't get tackled above the waist. Right? Why are they doing that? Because rugby was sick and tired of having to deal with CTE. Right? Boxing will be another one that will have will have to deal with that. The NFL's already gone through its own panic. MMA will go through MMA. MMA will go through the exact same kind of thing eventually. Because what happens is you get to a point where you can't win the PR battle anymore, and you can't win over casual fans anymore, and people do start to drop out and everything else. At the moment, I think MMA could go the complete other way. For about, it's probably got about eight years, right? Where it is seen as the bro sport, right? It is seen as that, oh, it's even more full on than boxing and everything else. We'll go hire a pri private island. Everyone can live on the private island, take all the drugs you want and smash each other up. Eventually that will stop. And it always stops, right? Boxing didn't always have gloves. They put the gloves on to stop hurting people, which seems ridiculous now. They're going to have to make the gloves bigger because boxers are going through more. Eventually, boxers are going to wear helmets again. The only reason that they don't wear helmets at the moment is we now know that CTE isn't really fixed by helmets anyway. Um, it doesn't help at all. But the point is that every sport and, every, and everything goes through that because it's the – have a think of any cool brand in the world. Right. So uh, let, let's, I'm trying to think of one that, you know, it starts off as being really, really exclusive. Right. And all the cool people like it. And then it gets really popular for a while and everyone has it. And then what happens? One day, a 45 year old with a dad bod wears it. Right. A year, five years, 10 years later, it's in Target. Right. Why does that happen? They want to sell more of it. They now have something that will happen. MMA at the moment isn't being sold to as many people as it could be because of specifically what it is. They will find a middle ground to make sure that it's still violent enough that people like it, but also family-friendly enough that you can watch it. Let's call it the Baywatch model, right? 
And I've lived through this so many times with so many different kinds of sports. Uh, Australian rules football was a real perfect example of this. When I grew up playing Australian rules football, you just got punched all the time by random people, right? And eventually, mums stopped their kids being involved with it, right? And there was a stigma about watching it that you were a bit, you almost a thug if you liked it, right? Aussie rules football went, okay, great. We need to get mums and kids back involved. We're going to make it a little bit more saccharine, but still have it so it's a physical sport that people are hitting each other all the time. Everything goes through this, right? And I think that MMA is such a fascinating um, uh, part of this because we've seen this play out again and again and again. And after MMA, what will happen is there will be another really violent thing that comes in, right? And it will do good for a couple of years and then it will be worth billions and billions of dollars and then they will want to dilute it, take the Coke out of Coca-Cola. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Want to sell it to more people. This is what happens, right? If you get too popular, you then have to placate wider audiences. At the moment, I would say the majority of people who love MMA are MMA fans or bros, right? They're going to want to sell that, cut it and dilute it and do everything else. And if you don't, if you think this is just a sport thing, have a look at every rock band that's ever existed. It's a very, very similar thing, right? Eventually, as edgy as they want to be at times, they end up making something closer to pop music if they want to sell more records. They don't want to sell more records. They have to make that choice. But I tell you what the music labels are telling them. Maybe maybe less swearing. Maybe, you know, uh, maybe, maybe less drugs. But we'll still tell people that you once did drugs, but now you're actually on a vegan health kick. Um, and all. It's, it's the way that we market things. And this is a podcast about dopey and sport, but essentially it is about marketing. Yeah, it is. And, and it's very funny. MMA is only 25 to 30 years old. Mm -hmm. UFC barely started in the early 90s. It's, it, it's still amazing to see. MMA is the best example because you have legends like Big John McCarthy who were in the formulation of the rules of the sport still in the sport and you know big john is like a, a, a encyclopedia of mma history and he runs a podcast with a very known mma fighter josh thompson and they have a, a podcast called weighing in and it's always fascinating to listen to big john how rules came up how big john decided okay they're not gonna buy this rule so let me sell it this way and why the the administrators in the united states of america the federations they did this it started with Dana White saying women will never be part of MMA. Ronda Rousey proved him wrong. She just broke the damn thing. She broke the ceiling. Mm. And now today, women in mixed martial arts is such a normal thing. Like you you have major mixed martial artists, like superstars uh, that are women now. Then there was like drugs in sport, drugs in sport, the moral panic about that. They got USADA in. And that's why I showed that photo because the damn sport changed. Mm. And the, the, the sizes of players, of fighters shrunk. It shrunk amazingly. I think at the end of it all, it is a marketing thing. And the best example of that is you and I grew up in, in, in our early years, watching WWE, which was very different. Mm. The Attitude Era. How many people remember the Attitude Era where there was a lot of X-rated content? And today, WWE, somewhere down the line, they made the decision we have to be kids-friendly because the market increased. And today, uh, ironically, you know, Endeavor is the company that owns both UFC and WWE. Yeah. 
Well, just just on that, I, I, the, the whole thing is really interesting. I think what happened was we had convinced ourselves that sport was just for men, right? Yes. And now all these people have worked out that a women were. You look at some of the numbers for Premier League football and the NBA and the IPL, and you're just like, how could anyone think this was just for men? But they did. And so now they're like, well, how do we make money off the women, right? But the other thing is that, you know, I've got three children. I can go to I can go to a sporting event. I can go to a T20 game in 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 at the Oval with my friends, and we can get drunk, right? And it's going to cost me I don't know 100 quid to go to the Oval and get drunk with my friends watching a game, right? Cost me more than that to go with my kids sometimes, right? And you're not just building them up for that one game because those kids. Then when they're 15 and when they're 25 and when they're 35, they're coming back and maybe they're bringing their kids or maybe they're getting drunk. You're actually doing that. And I think that you talk about the wrestling. Wrestling is a perfect example of what I'm talking about, this, 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 this way that things go. And I do think that WADA, as, as we said, some of it doesn't make as much sense and it's antiquated because the, the corruption has gone beyond it. But you know, having that there actually allows them to sell uh, the overall thing. Even if it's it's like some of the security stuff we go through at the airport. It's like I'm I have absolutely never been a, a terrorist or never tried to bring down a plane. I reckon even I could get past some of the security stuff at the airport if I really tried it. Right? If I really put my mind to it, I'm sure I, you know you and I between the two of us could come up with something. Right? But it's the illusion that matters right Feel it's, good. A, it's supposed to look hard to get through the security right and wada is there so it looks harder to do doping than it should be and even if it isn't any safer or any cleaner than the sport would be without wada and you'd have to say that they certainly have a certain uh, they must have a big effect as you said especially in the lower end where people can only buy shitty drugs um you know I, they certainly have an effect there but even if it doesn't it is the illusion that they're doing something that matters. And that is what modern sport is, right? It's all an illusion, right? You know, you, I did a podcast with my friend, John Norman, you know, one day we'll, we'll bring this podcast back. We did it for talk sport for a little while. And one of the things we talked about was we really like this human being because they're wearing the same shirt that we identify with, despite the fact that that shirt may not actually have, I might not have even been born into the culture of that shirt. And that person who's doing it is just doing it as a job. And next week, they'll be more than happy to go and change that shirt to something else. Most of modern sport is that illusion that they're doing it because, you know, the, the gutsy, hard narrative and all this sort of stuff. When actual fact, you've, what you've got is a bunch of young, athletically gifted people trying to get as much out of their body for as long as possible. But if we said that all the time, right, if that's, all, if that's how we talked about sports, be hard to sell <laughs> it'd be hard let's hope we get four more years out of lebron james before he has no cartilage left in his knees and he spends the rest of his life hobbling is not exactly as sexy as oh do we think we can't believe how well he's played maybe he can just maybe he can divide defy the aging curve because he's such an adonis of a man right we have to think about it that way and that's what we do and that's why the Adonis of a man, the, the Greek goddess of a woman that we need our athletes to be does clash with the idea that they are putting something in their veins. Exactly. It's, it, 
the existence of the human species is the veneer of morality that we have come up with and and i actually agree with that the, the that if somebody gives me that argument rather than you know look policies have to be effective hmm. i don't know how much of anti doping policies if we judge them on the effectivity criteria will pass that muster i don't think so which was my whole time like i'm someone who was very pro vaccination i even took a booster right i was someone who thought that okay masking makes sense but policies have to be designed on the basis of effectivity if mm. that is the criteria which is why i was always opposed to lockdowns in a country like india where even if i do this i'll hit three people so what the hell am i going to lock people down to so it made no sense which is why i always opposed lockdowns because it didn't make sense it doesn't mean i was an anti vaxxer i took the vaccination the first opportunity well, i got the lockdown thing's really interesting because even in india my guess is that lockdown probably played a part in the slowing down of the of the transmission which meant that hospitals and doctors and and you know kit and nurses and everything had the ability to fight it a little bit more right maybe Ascent in the first wave Yeah, but by the time we had the infrastructure ready, it made no. Oh sense. no, no, no! But I'm saying uh, there were times when it worked, right? But there is the the point of that is right that water is very similar to that. Water probably works in that 1970s, 1980s era when people are just trying to get stuff from the local person and everything else, right? But at a certain point, if you took water away or you took the lockdowns completely away, right, a lot of people would go crazy. right so it's not that the lockdowns actually work but they are again it's the illusion that they are there that actually stops you doing other things and we need that we're a terrible species right <laughs> we are we you know we are we ruin our own environment in a way that most species don't we're invasive uh, we we don't look after the resources that we need to look after right we build communities but then we use those communities to kill other communities right we separate ourselves despite the fact that there is almost no difference between people from different countries let alone people from different religions right all these stupid things that we do as a species we actually need these illusions to keep us going so i i I'll, i'll do this we have to finish this eventually partly because i need to do more podcasts later and i haven't even did it yet but also um i i want to finish on this the, i i talked to a sports uh, sorry not a sport a psychologist when i was doing that thing actually it was the 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 show with john norman that i was talking about before and he's he had a a hypothesis that sport stops war right which is weird because when he first said it i was like we still have war and he said yes if you look at the percentage of war we used to have right before you know 1850 compared to now it's actually far less we occasionally get big ones and we talk about them a lot We don't get as many constant wars as we ever got before. And he said if you look before 1850, who were the people that people barracked for, supported, backed? It's generals, it's warlords, you know, kings, queens, whoever it may be. And so sport at its if if he's right in this, sport is the illusion that we need to stop to give us that local community that national community the private community you know the the MMA fighter that you like or the tennis player that you like or whatever that may be right sport actually allows us to focus on them rather than going i really hope that modi attacks um uh that that modi attacks uh pakistan or that you know uh, was it what's the country is it 
is it Ecuador that wants to um, attack Guyana or whatever it may be, right? Like we now barrack for Virat Kohli, right? Rather than the king, the queen, the president, the general and everything else. And it's a really, really interesting thing. So when you start to break it down, maybe sport is the illusion that we need to keep our mind off everything else in the same way. And it does move us. And yet it move, sport moves you and me. And yet compared to most sport fans, we completely see through the illusion, right? And then I watched Scott Boland, who I watched for 10 years, be an absolutely ordinary professional cricketer, right? I worked with him. There was nothing special about him. And then late in his life, he works out a new, new, new trick, changes his bowling completely. How can I not be happy for this person? that has done this and would I know about it if he'd done it as a landscape gardener no I can't watch him landscape garden I can watch him bowl and win a world test championship for his country so the illusion is still there and yet here I am saying that Scott Boland moved me in a way again absolutely so I'll give you the questions quickly and then we'll wrap it up so (laughs) all the questions are about the WTC should India's top five batters be replaced except Gil? <laughs> so Gil's a really interesting one at the moment because he's failed in this game. Like there's this narrative that Gil is no longer any good. Three months ago, everyone was telling me he was the best player in the world, right? And the IPL certainly backed that up. He's a fantastic player. He made a mistake um, in, in, uh, in to a ball that was almost unplayable. Like if you look at the physics of that ball, it was almost unplayable. Um, and then he got a decent ball in the second innings. Batting is 66% failure, right? So if his next innings, he makes runs, he hasn't failed. He's just been a par batter. But that's not how we look at it. And the, the, the whole fascination with Shubman Gill, and, and not just Shubman Gill, and Shubman Gill now, it was Prissy Shaw beforehand. It was Rishabh Pant for a little while. It was K.L. Rahul, right? It's just like, it you cycle through and this is what sports coverage does and cricket is so bad at this compared to other sports we're cycling through the next person who we want dropped all the time and it's like you can't drop them all they're all gonna fail right you can't take five wickets every time you bowl and you can't make 100 every time you bat no one has ever done it bradman didn't do it yeah it's it's just indian fans, they, fans. they expect perfection all fans trust me all fans. I, I'm in a unique position. The only difference between Indian fans and other fans is that there are more of them. <laughs> yeah, that's the only difference. True. So, I mean, should India make it necessary for players to play X number of Ranji games to be picked in a test match, given the IPL is a recruiting hub for ODIs and T20s? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really, really interesting one going ahead. I think that the problem with the Ranji Trophy is that it's probably... So we invented first-class cricket based on, and I say we as an Australian, but also as an Indian in, in our case, right? We invented that based on English cricket, right? But when county cricket was invented, it was the strongest form of cricket in the world, right? There was no international cricket. The best cricket was played in counties, right? I don't, that's no longer the case. So playing more Ranji Trophy probably doesn't help you face Scott Boland bowling a wobble ball on a, on a bouncy uh, oval pitch right? It just doesn't. You're not going to face something like that. What you what you really need to do, if you want the truth, is uh, they can play a little bit of Ranji cricket, but it's, it, you know, the Raul Dravid method, which was make sure that you have 
uh, 11 players in India A traveling the world as much as possible, playing in as many different places against really good cricketers is a far better method than Ranji Trophy. But what I would say is Indian cricket, because you have so many players, you probably need an A team, a B team, and a C team constantly traveling. And literally, so there are, you don't want to miss out on the, the 33rd best player. You might not rank them very high, but that might be Washington Sundar and you don't know about them. You don't want to be in a situation to not know. Whereas in New Zealand, you don't only need the top 12 to 15 players outside the team going on tours at any one time. If you want my honest answer, that's what I would do. If I was Indian cricket, I would spend billions of dollars. I would actually give money to other boards to make sure that their players could travel more and play against me in more situations um, and have tri-series and make sure they're really professional. So like if it's the, I don't know, the Sri Lanka A team, you want them to have an analyst because you want them analyzing against your players because that's what's going to happen at the next level. So you could actually fully fund that in a way that your team is then, because we go back to the money thing. If India cricket, if the BCCI use their money correctly, they would be the best team in the world by such a distance. It's not even funny. And if you need a really good example of that, Australia became the best team in the world by being the first professional team. England currently have the ODI World Cup, the T20 World Cup, and maybe are the second or third best test nation, and maybe even better than that if they beat Australia at home this year. And they have done it by spending a lot of money. Yeah, I, I, I understand. <laughs> this is interesting. Will it be better if Australia, England, and India are not in the World Test Championship? They don't need the WTC to be honest. <laughs> I think the problem is that the only way you would get the money for it would be if they are involved. Yeah. So Otherwise, the, what's the point of the tournament? Yeah, I get that. I get the point from a cricket perspective. It actually, it doesn't really make sense for those three nations to be in it. I'm not sure why they ever agreed to it other than maybe they won another trophy each. Um, I don't really understand why they agreed to it, but from a financial point of view, you could actually make a bit of money from all the other nations if they got together and used their brains, but they won't. So that's, I've given up on that as a hope. That's why international cricket is dead. It's because they won't. They had their chance of doing that and they didn't do it. Uh, but yes, it's a very fair um, thing that you could do that. You could also, if you want to be really cool, India, Australia and England play each other so often, you could leave them off to play uh, amongst themselves. And then the best team out of those three could play the best team out of the World Test Championship. You could see, you know, a rest of the world versus the best of the big three would be, again, a very interesting way of uh, of looking at that going ahead. True. All right. So I guess we've uh, covered all the questions, uh, Jared. Uh, as always, a pleasure talking to you. Uh, until next time, take care. No worries. Cheers, mate. All right. All right, guys, we'll wrap it up. As always, in the description of the podcast, you'll have Jared's Patreon, Substack, Twitter handle. So do the needful. And uh, as always, thank you for watching or listening. If you are the audio listener on Spotify, iTunes, please give, give a rating over there. If you're watching this video on YouTube, like the video, subscribe to the channel. And this podcast is, or and in fact, even Jared's uh, podcast is completely member driven so people like us uh i i consider jared to be a heterodox thinker like me because he doesn't uh, you know he doesn't hold back and uh no wonder jared has so many issues with so many people <laughs> because they don't like him because jared uh, says things that don't like uh, people don't like to be heard um heterodoxy needs a level of risk that uh, you guys uh, have to appreciate so if you can please support uh, people who are heterodox through the membership program because that's the only way they survive so this this podcast also survives on the membership program so if you can do become a member on youtube patreon fanmo wherever you are i'll see you guys next time until then namaste take care bye